From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A spinal cord injury can have devastating consequences, including paralysis. But new research being conducted at Mayo Clinic may offer hope. On today's program, we'll hear from the lead investigators of a study that has returned voluntary movements to a previously paralyzed patient. First, we try it with the stimulator off, and we say, try to move your leg, try to flex your knee, try to move your ankle, and there's no response. Then when we turn the stimulator on and there's a response. And I think he was surprised. Also on the program, we'll discuss how to deal with those seasonal allergies. And we'll have an update on this past flu season. Just how effective was this year's flu vaccine? All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, there is medical research, and then there is truly exciting medical research. And what we're about to talk about is surely in that exciting category. Mayo Clinic researchers have made a fascinating breakthrough in the treatment of spinal cord injuries. Now, through electrical stimulation on the spinal cord and a lot of intense physical therapy, a previously paralyzed patient was able to move his paralyzed legs, was able to stand up and make step-like movements for the first time in three years. How exciting is that? That is a big deal. (laughs) Here to discuss this exciting advancement and what is on the horizon are principal investigators Dr. Christian Zhao and Dr. Kendall Lee. Dr. Zhao is director of Mayo Clinic's Assistive and Restorative Technology Laboratory, and Dr. Lee is the director of Mayo Clinic's Neural Engineering Laboratory. Welcome, both of you, to the program. Thank you you so much. Great to be here. Dr. Lee, Dr. Zhao, it sounds like you two have accomplished what people have been trying to do for decades and what Superman was hoping for. Well, let me say that this is a replication study that was performed by um, by Dr. Reggie Egerton and um, Dr. Susie Hakema at University of Louisville. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of this study, we teamed up with Dr. Reggie Egerton at UCLA to one to replicate the findings, which is in, and and the question was in paralyzed patients with spinal cord injury. Is it possible to get volitional control back after epidural stimulation? So that was one of the goals. Volitional meaning if you say, I want to move my leg, you can move your leg. Exactly right. So in these patients, because their spinal cord is severed, the information from the brain cannot go to the spinal cord and, of course, to the muscles to move the legs. And in this particular patient who had a T6 motor and sensory complete spinal cord injury. And what I mean by motor and uh, and sensory complete is that there is absolutely no movement below the level of the lesion, and there was no sensation below, in this case, thoracic level 6. All right, but so that's up in the up in the chest, pretty that, high up that, in the that's chest, right, exactly. below the neck, but and above the lumbar spine. So that's somewhere that's, in between there. Yes, that's and exactly you, and right. And if you have a, a lesion at that level, you lose a lot, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, not only do they lose the control of the legs, but they also lose bowel, bladder, and sexual function as well. 
Now, here's a pretty simple question. Why can't you just sew the spinal cord back together? Yeah, well, you know, the reason, as a neurosurgeon, we, we do operate on the spinal cord. And you can sew the spinal cord back, but the problem is the wiring, the axons that goes from the brain down to, through the spinal cord into the muscles, well, it is not possible to sew those back together. Yeah, and they won't grow back together. And no they will matter, not grow no back together. And they're like That's a bunch right. of, the axons are like a bunch of little wires that go out to the, the muscles to yes, make exactly the move. Yes, exactly right. Okay, so you, someone had, had done a similar study before. And tell us what's involved. What actually did you do to make the spinal cord somewhat work? Well, maybe I can have Dr. Zhao talk about the preoperative physical therapy. Sure. Which we'll talk about. And then there's the surgical part and then the postoperative physical therapy. Dr. So there was a lot of work that went in before the surgery happened? Exactly. So really um, one of the things we wanted to replicate from the previous study was their rehab intervention. So for 22 weeks, the patient um, subject came in and received kind of a standardized protocol where they did stepping on a treadmill, they did some sideline mat work, and also some overground and standing work. So it's a very systematic protocol, it's very rigorous, and really the point of that early rehab was to determine whether the subject would recover function um, with just rehab alone. So could they recover any volitional movement without the surgical intervention? Is it because if the nerve has been damaged, your muscles forget what they're supposed to do or that they just get so weak, or why do you need to do that? Well, it's really, um, there's a lot of theories about what's happening, and I don't think anyone's completely sure about what is happening. But there are theories that the signal is not getting from the brain all the way to the muscle, but you want to recover just as much activity as you can, even above the level of the injury, so that when they do have surgery and post-surgery, they can hopefully recover and move quickly into that post-surgical rehab. So what we like to think of it is is priming the system to get ready for surgery. Um, and in this case, the, the subject did not regain any volitional movement prior to surgery. So he did move on and, and have the surgery with Dr. Lee. So when you say he walked on the treadmill, he didn't really walk on the treadmill, <laughs> right? Right. <clears throat> so the rehab intervention consists of basically four trainers who um, surround the subject. Mm-hmm. The subject is offloaded through a body weight support harness, if you will. So they're wearing a kind of a, a vest that holds their body weight up. Okay. And then the, the trainers are kind of stepping and moving the subject's legs through a walking pattern on the treadmill. So that's what we call walking, but it's sure. highly assisted walking by the trainers and just trying to get um, the nervous system used to doing that again. You wanted to make sure that the, the spinal cord lesion was complete and, and the patient wouldn't get any better with any kind of rehab. Exactly. And so, you and you figured out that he wouldn't, so then you said, Dr. Lee, help us. <laughs> yeah, so at that point, neurosurgery, our team uh, took over and t- took the patient to the operating room. So the operation involves a whole surgical team uh, along with Dr. Zhao's team and Dr. Reggie Eggerson's team from UCLA. And the reason is because the surgery, we had to place the, this implantable system in a very particular area. So the patient came to the operating room. The anesthesia team intubates the patient, and the patient is under general anesthesia. The patient is placed um, on the operating table with face down and exposing the back. So 
what we do is to make a midline incision where we go down reflecting the paraspinal muscles laterally. The muscles on the sides of the spine. Exactly. And I had to expose the epidural space. And when, what that means is that the spinal cord sits in the spinal canal, and the covering of that, uh, of the spinal cord, is called the dura, which is a very tough wrap that goes around the spinal cord, sure. which encases the cerebrospinal fluid. And so the electrode has to be right above that dura, and that's why it's called epidural stimulation, meaning above the dura. Okay. So to do that, we had to remove a little bit of the the bone, what's called the lamina, which is the the vertebral bone that covers the spinal cord, so that we can slide this uh, electrode, which is actually used for other indications. So this is a system that is made by uh, companies such as Medtronic that can be placed above the dura to help patients for pain. And so the device itself is actually approved for pain indication. Mm -hmm. But in order for us to do this, we did have to get the FDA approval as as well as the what's called IRB approval, Investigational uh, Review Board, that allowed us to do this very cutting-edge surgery. And then once the electrode was placed and um, it is then connected to a battery that is actually placed on a second uh, part of the surgery into an area just above the abdomen. So and inside the body, though. Yes, yes. So everything is um, is um, is implanted uh, inside the body. Can't see anything. Yes. Okay. Now, 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 do you put this electrode just above the the site where the cord has been damaged, or no. in, in relationship to the the damaged cord, where do you put it? Yeah, so this is a good question. So in order for this to work, we have to put the electrode below the level of the lesion okay. in an area that um, has the spinal cord that feeds all of the leg areas. And so this is actually placed at the T12, thoracic level 12, and L1 level, because that's approximately where the greatest nerves that go into the legs, that's where they exist. Oh, cool. so it's quite a ways below where yes. the, the actual cord damage was. Yes, that's that's right. Okay. And furthermore, when we place this, we also have to get EMG signals from all of the different muscles that the stimulation will hope to activate. So in, in the legs, and EMG is, these are very small uh, probes that goes into the muscles, and Dr. Reggie Eggerson's team, along with Dr. Zhao's team, was monitoring all of those signals, so that after the surgical team placed this implanted system, we could see that we placed those electrodes in the correct location. Ah, interesting. So how long did that operation take? Well, you know, this took uh, quite a bit of time because of all of the testing that we had to do, and so I would say that it took about six hours in total. All right, our guests are Dr. Kendall Lee. He's a neurosurgeon at the Mayo Clinic and director of Mayo Clinic's Neural Engineering Laboratory. And Dr. Kristen Zhao is also with us. She is director of Mayo Clinic's Assistive and Restorative Technology Laboratory. And she's also a, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the patient, how they're doing now, and what the future holds for restoring function in paralyzed patients. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about electrical stimulation of the spinal cord and restoring function in patients who have had spinal cord injuries. We're with neurosurgeon Dr. Kendall Lee and biomedical engineer Dr. Christian Zhao. So we've talked about the fact that you identified a patient who had a lesion up in the in the chest area. Spinal cord had been damaged. Uh, you have tried physical therapy and it didn't help. You knew it wasn't going to work. So then you inserted this electrode a little lower down in the uh, the spine. Uh, you've got a battery pack also inserted in the patient to uh, provide stimulation to the electrode. And then, Dr. Zhao, you take over after that? Well, so up immediately after surgery, the patient goes through some um, post-surgical... Um, yes. Uh, so we typically wait about two weeks in order for the wounds to heal. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I should also mention that the implant, even though we call it the battery, it's actually a lot more than a battery. This is a, really a computer system that allows us to electrically stimulate these different contacts in a very particular way. It controls the pulse width, the amount of voltage, which contact that we can stimulate, and the frequency. And so by being able to control that, we can program this device into a very particular neuromodulation therapy. Well, and do you program it, Dr. Zhao, or um, how does so that So our that? team, our yeah. team of engineers from both the neural engineering side and the rehab side have learned to program this device. And early on, um, we call that optimization. So wh- what are the best combinations of stimulation that will help the patient? Although um, we think that over time we will continue to sort of optimize this for the subject. That you can adjust right. what is happening with that stimulator? Right. Yes. Okay. And, and what did you want to happen? What was the first thing you tried? Well, you know, I, I have to say, one of our expectations was that it would take a long stimulation period mm-hmm. and long amount of post-operative physical therapy before we would get any volitional movement back. The, one of the great surprises with this study, which has not been described before, is that this patient was able to get volitional control back the first time we turned them on, which was really spectacular. And you were expecting weeks. That, that's right. Wow. In fact, the first right. few times we were, ex- wow. yeah, we, we were expecting nothing. Right. And, and the biggest <laughs> okay. surprise was that the first day we turn, turned this on and we asked him, to move his legs, he did it. Hmm. And and what you were saying earlier, the volitional is very important, that this was not just a muscle twitch, but this was him controlling his leg muscles once again. You So you said to him, can you move your leg? And yes. he moved his leg. Right. So first we, we try it with the stimulator off, and we say, you know, try to move your leg, try to flex your knee, try to move your ankle, and there's no response. Then when we turn the stimulator on... We say the same thing, and there's a response. So it's clear that and it was the first time for him to see that movement. I think he was surprised, but we had started with the stimulator off, and he couldn't. So how exciting on. was that? I mean, was the whole team there? It was, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can speak for myself personally. Uh, it was really mind-blowing. Really? Now, you've done this one patient, and that was how long ago? And, and what's the status of the patient now? How's he doing? So the subject is still enrolled in the study. Um, he's continuing to do um, three rehab sessions a week, and we continue to push him to try and regain additional function. So 
Um, we we hope to have another report um, out in July with some some additional findings. Yeah, um, I can say that because the findings of the first two weeks of stimulation was so exciting and novel, uh, we did write up our findings and it was published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Mm-hmm. And uh, what what can he do now? I mean, in terms of, of function, can he walk? Can he take some steps? Where, well, where I think he? we need. To be a little bit careful yeah. with answering this because we, we uh, the patient is still under clinical IRB. study mm-hmm. and under IRB, we are very optimistic and we're still collecting that information. And so we want to collect the information properly and release the information appropriately as well. Well, at the beginning of the interview, Dr. Shives said uh, something about Superman and Christopher Reeve. There had to be people on that foundation that were very excited with what you've accomplished to this point, too. Yes, and I think what is really exciting about this is that it also changes our paradigm in thinking about spinal cord injury. You know, I can tell you when I went through medical school and training, and as a neurosurgeon seeing these patients in clinic in the emergency rooms, that once you have the complete spinal cord injury, you're not going to get volitional control back. Sure. But this, I think, changes that whole paradigm thinking. So how many patients could potentially benefit from this new research? Worldwide, you, I think it's... it's number in the millions. millions, millions. Yeah, so, okay, so you've done one. Mm-hmm. Um, when are you going to do the next one? And, and how many people <laughs> have written you, emailed you, called you, and said, I want to be next? Yeah, you know, after we published our first paper, there has been a tremendous uh, response from mm-hmm. the public. What I will say is this technology, though, is still early stage. And mm-hmm. so, yes, um, I, I do think that we can be optimistic, but I think we also need to be very cautious. This is very few patients who underwent this study. We still do not understand the mechanism, how we're doing this, and therefore those studies need to be done. And I think we need to uh, move forward very cautiously but optimistically. So do you believe that someday uh, being paralyzed will not be a permanent condition? One of the next steps we we really need to address is identifying which patients are ideal candidates for this, you know, who will respond to this and who won't. I mean, obviously every spinal cord injury is a little bit different depending on the mechanism and we really need to get some some evidence and some data to say, you know, these are the patients we think we can help and we're confident we can help and these are the ones we can't or through research studies. So, I mean, I think I speak for both of us that that's really the next step is to really try and, and, and understand that mechanism. Do you think it makes a difference how long it's been since the cord was injured? I mean, do you have, is it more likely that you can well, help somebody? Well, I think this is an excellent it? question, but um, it we is don't know yet unknown, yet. yes. All right, electrical stimulation for restoring function in patients with spinal cord injuries. Dr. Kristen Zhao, biomedical engineer, neurosurgeon Dr. Kendall Lee, thank you so much. It's thank exciting you. research and all the best in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you today. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk about how to handle those seasonal allergies. And later on the program, we'll have an update on this past flu season. Was it worse than most? Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. There's new information out about women and how the hormone estrogen influences their health, in particular, their blood pressure. What we've discovered in my lab is that estrogen plays a key role in explaining why blood pressure is lower in young women 
and higher in older women. Dr. Michael Joyner says estrogen affects a woman's blood pressure in two ways. The first thing estrogen does is it affects the endothelial function of your blood vessels. The endothelium is the lining of the blood vessels, and estrogen keeps that lining slippery and helps relax the blood vessels. The second thing is estrogen suppresses the level of nerves that constrict the blood vessels. At menopause, estrogen levels drop, and as women age, blood vessels don't function as well. People need to remain physically active because that protects the vascular endothelium, and physical activity can also limit the ability of these sympathetic nerves to clamp down on the blood vessels. Dr. Joyner says perhaps in the future, new types of hormone replacement will emerge that can help prevent high blood pressure in postmenopausal women. And in other news, people with lactose intolerance are unable to fully digest the sugar or lactose in milk. As a result, they have diarrhea, gas, and bloating after eating or drinking dairy products. The condition, which is also called lactose malabsorption, is usually harmless, but its symptoms can be unbearable. A deficiency of lactase, an enzyme produced in your small intestine, is usually the cause. Most people with lactose intolerance can manage the condition without having to give up all dairy foods. With some trial and error, you may be able to predict your body's response to different foods containing lactose and figure out how much you can eat or drink without discomfort. Talk to your health care provider if you think you may be lactose intolerant. And now let's talk about caffeine. It has its perks, but it can pose problems too. So how much is too much? If you rely on caffeine to wake you up and keep you going, you aren't alone. Caffeine is used daily by millions of people to increase wakefulness, alleviate fatigue, and improve concentration and focus. Up to 400 milligrams of caffeine a day appears to be safe for most healthy adults. That's roughly the amount of caffeine in four cups of brewed coffee. Caffeine use may be safe for adults, but it's not a great idea for children. Adolescents should limit caffeine consumption. And anyone should avoid mixing caffeine with other substances, such as alcohol, even among adults. Heavy caffeine use can cause unpleasant side effects, and caffeine may not be a good choice for people who are highly sensitive to its effects or who take certain medications. You might want to cut back if you get headaches, can't sleep, are irritable, get a stomach ache, have muscle tremors, or experience fast racing hearts. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, you know what? It's almost spring, even in Minnesota, and that means flower buds and blooming trees. But you know, if you're one of the millions of people who have seasonal allergies, you do? Yeah. Well, no. It's not all roses, is it? No, exactly. (laughs) Well, you're coughing, you're sneezing, you're wheezing, you're congested, and your nose won't quit running. They're called seasonal allergies or allergic rhinitis. And as you can attest, it can make you miserable. Yes. So how can allergy sufferers find relief? Is there such a thing? (laughs) Are there home remedies or medications that can help? Here to discuss seasonal allergies is family medicine physician, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Cozine. It's good to have you here. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, Dr. Cozine, for being here, especially at this time of year. Do you already have an office full of allergy sufferers? 
I not full, but trickling in. <laughs> and it is I early. think you know we had a relatively calm and quiet winter here in Minnesota. So I am seeing that with the warmer seasons that we've been having the last few years that there are more allergy sufferers later in the fall and sooner in the spring. Some people have different triggers. So for many people, you know, Dr. Shives mentioned when things are starting to bud or um, leaves are falling in the fall, then people have more symptoms. But there are people who have allergens to sort of home things like dust mites or um, animal dander that have symptoms year-round. So when somebody comes in with a with a runny nose and congested and they're coughing or wheezing, and uh, how do you know it's hay fever? I mean, how do you say, oh, well, you don't have a cold, you don't have the flu, you've got allergies? Right. Well, usually in, in my line of work, we kind of take in the whole picture about what's happening. Um, typically, people that are coming in with allergy symptoms, there's something going on in the season. You know, it's starting to warm up, people are outside more, they maybe started exercising outside again after being cooped up indoors all winter. So I help put that together. But you're right, sometimes the symptoms can be a little bit uh, tricky to sort out from um, an upper respiratory infection versus allergies. But um, the thing about treating allergies is that you just give it a shot and see how it goes. Not a real shot. Correct. Yeah, that would be the wrong thing. <laughs> but don't don't some people get allergy shots? Yeah, that was a nice segue. I wasn't even planning that. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. So if somebody has um, seasonal allergies that are not well treated by over-the-counter medicines, so that would be antihistamines, non-sedating antihistamine like cetirizine, which is Zyrtec, um, fexofenadine, which is Allegra, or loratadine, which is Claritin. And those are all over-the-counter. Those are all over-the-counter, among some other over-the-counter things. I might consider sending them to an allergist for what's called allergy immunotherapy, which is what typically people refer to as allergy shots. Is it important to know what you're allergic to? Yeah, you know, if I um, am having trouble getting somebody under control with my standard treatments, when I send them to an allergy, they usually do what's called, or to an allergist, they do skin prick testing, where they have a whole series of vials and potions, and they do little squares, and frankly, I'm not totally sure what they do, but they end up with a diagnosis, you know, you're allergic to dogs, you're allergic to... Uh, trees, grasses, and molds, you know, X, Y, Z thing, and then we can direct, they can direct the allergy immunotherapy. Have you done that? I did do that, actually, <laughs> mm-hmm. and found out that I have non-allergic rhinitis, and so I, my next question was, well, then what is it that gives me these allergy-like symptoms? And they said, oh, things like dust and mold right. and pets. I'm like, isn't that allergy? And so I just stopped listening. I gave up. I have actually given up hope of ever figuring out how to control my allergies. Yeah, but, right. But, you know, the one of the bottom lines in that regard is that we treat it about the same. So for somebody who has allergic rhinitis versus non-allergic rhinitis, we might rhinitis is runny nose. Okay, what right. we might use is a nasal steroid, so something like fluticasone, which is Flonase, which can help decrease the inflammation in the nasal passages and stop that really irritating, aggravating drip down the back of your throat. Mm. Amen. Uh, do <laughs> <laughs> most people who have uh, allergic rhinitis, hay fever, um, are they able to control their symptoms pretty well with something over the counter? And how do you choose? There are a myriad of uh, potentials out there, right. uh, uh, the things that you could potentially use. How do you how do you pick? And are most of them pretty good yeah, at you know, Most of them symptoms. are pretty good. And so typically what I recommend is um, a non-sedating antihistamine. So people either talk about Benadryl, which is diphenhydramine, which tends to make people pretty drowsy. So I try to avoid that because the vast majority of people need to be awake during the day. And so something like cetirizine, which is Zyrtec, or loratadine, which is Claritin, is non-sedating but can still help decrease that histamine response, which is one of the mediators that can help cause these symptoms that people have. So I start with a, a daily medicine. I say be pretty proactive. Take it 
or before you know your symptoms are going to start. So if you always, right around tax season, start to have allergy symptoms, maybe April 1st, start to take your antihistamine. And then go ahead and add a nasal spray if one of your symptoms is allergic rhinitis. And my um, one of my main approaches is to choose the cheapest one. There's no reason to use the brand name. If you can find the cheapest fluticasone nasal spray, go ahead and use that one. And um, pharmacists at your local retail pharmacy can be really helpful in trying to help sort out what these different um, products are. It's, it's a good idea to say, may I speak with the pharmacist and, and ask, get their recommendation. I think it's really helpful because, yeah. you know, it's not too often that I find myself in the over-the-counter aisle, but when I do, I'm amazed by the vast numbers of products and even that the same product might be labeled for a different function and have a different cost even though it's the same it's all the same type and what about something like zyrtec or claritin that you take every day Mm -hmm. for the whole year i mean when do you get to a point where your body says yeah i'm not even paying attention to this medication anymore you know, we don't think of it as something that your body gets used to. Um, there are people that need to take the antihistamine year-round. There are some people that take it spring through fall, so from freeze to frost. Um, and other people that might just need it, you know, a weekend away at the cabin, for example. What about, uh, we've talked previously about using neti pots for various yeah. things where you actually irrigate out your You do that. Every day. No. I don't use a neti pot. I use a squirter bottle. The and Neomed? I, the Neomed. I like and I, it's my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. It's super helpful. I think you're addicted. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's worse things to be addicted Absolutely. to. That's for sure. So d- does that help people yeah, with Yeah, it really can. Allergies? For people that have a lot of what people will describe as sinus congestion, the neti pot or the Neomed, which is a nasal saline rinse, can make a big difference. I really recommend just using the rinses that are um, recommended on the the package, so just um, you know, sterile saline versus any additives to that, but um, it can be a great option to just help keep things cleared out. Um, last question, and I think you pretty much answered it, and that uh, is when to see a, a physician. And I assume that if you've tried these over-the-counter medications, multiple ones maybe, and, and they're not working, then would you send the patient uh, to an allergist? Would that be the next step? It often is the next step. Sometimes I try additional um, nasal sprays or drops that are prescription versus over-the-counter. Um, so instead of a nasal steroid, doing a nasal antihistamine, for example. Um, but if that's not working, I send them to an allergist, do more focused testing, and then we can talk about allergy immunotherapy. All right. Seasonal Allergies, Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks again. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll have an update on this past flu season. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Certainly the evidence indicates we've underestimated what the potential for aspirin really is. Since becoming a medicine cabinet staple in the late 1800s, aspirin may be the closest thing we have to a wonder drug. It helps with aches and pains and to lower the risk of heart attack. But Dr. Frank Sinecrope with Mayo Clinic says aspirin may also help prevent cancer and even lower the risk of dying from certain kinds of cancer. We've shown to reduce the risk of dying from colorectal cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and lung cancer. Dr. Sinecrope says more study is needed to understand and why aspirin is so effective, but he believes it's related to aspirin's ability to reduce inflammation. Over time, we've appreciated that cancer develops due to chronic inflammation. Aspirin happens to be very effective at reducing inflammation, and that's likely the key to how it can prevent or slow the spread of cancer. Dr. Sinecrope says aspirin has a relatively low risk of side effects, but bleeding from the GI tract and hemorrhagic strokes are possible, so you should always talk with your doctor before taking it on a long-term basis. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Ian Roth. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Well, Tracy, right here in the Northern Hemisphere, spring has finally arrived, and the flu season is pretty much all but over. But you know, this year's flu season was a tough one, especially for middle-aged people. You know, the, the flu usually hits the very young and the very old the hardest. But this year, people between the ages of 50 and 64, that's just a little bit older than, than you are, mm-hmm. a decade or two older than you mm-hmm. are. They're the yeah. ones that had to be hospitalized the most often. And the flu vaccine this year, it didn't work all that well in preventing the flu, unfortunately. <laughs> so says the orthopedic surgeon who suffered from the oh, flu. Oh, yeah, I've never been sicker in my life. Oh, boy. Uh, this Close past, to death. Yeah. Here to talk about this year's flu season is infectious disease expert, Dr. Pratish Tosh. Welcome back to the program, uh, Dr. Tosh. Thank you very much for having me back. Boy, he is going to lay into you That's because fine. he Let's, got the flu shot I and he got the it. flu. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of required if you work here, and that's all okay. I don't mind getting the flu shot, but it if 48% effective doesn't sound so good. It doesn't like it was a very good year for the flu vaccine. Yeah, and when we look at our influenza vaccine and compare it to other vaccines we have, look at measles or um, really a lot of the other things we have, um, you know, everything else seems to be like a really good vaccine. Influenza vaccine is generally not as good as some of the other vaccines we have. And a lot of this is related to, I mean, this we're talking about decades, really, over half a century old technology. Right now, it is the best we have. And I think it uh, leads to, we need a lot more research to develop novel influenza vaccines. You know, wouldn't it be great if you had a vaccine that you actually didn't have to take every year <laughs> that would uh, cover all the different strains and would, you know, be you know, 90% effective and last a decade. And you know, people are working on that. Well, they should be, but isn't it sort of uh, it's because there are so many different strains of influenza that you can't cover them all. It's guesswork to decide which one is going to raise its head uh, uh, this year, in the coming year. And it's sort of like uh, trying to get a vaccine for the cold, right? There are hundreds of cold viruses, and you can't vaccinate somebody because you can't vaccinate against all of them. Is is that sort of true? Yes and no. Mostly no. Well, you're the expert. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, well, let me re-ask that then. Isn't it because the flu vaccine is just always changing? And so just like the flu is always changing. We're, we in public health, usually pretty good at predicting which influenza strains are going to be circulating the following year and able to put that into the uh, vaccine. Even when we are very good at predicting, and we say we usually are, the 90% time mm-hmm. plus, uh, the vaccine is still, we're looking at 60 to 70%. Uh, efficacious in healthy individuals. Isn't that what I just said? <laughs> Tell me the wrong the part difference. of my question. So the yeah. wrong part is that <laughs> there's just so many strains out there, it's really hard to predict what's going on to mm-hmm. what to put in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so we're actually really good at, at predicting what's going to be going around and to find the right strain to put in the vaccine. The issue is that the vaccine, uh, with using the current technologies, is not as effective as we'd like. Now, 60 to 70% effective is much better than not getting it all, right? And even better than a coin flip. And for those who even get influenza, let's say we're looking at the very young or the very old, uh, we do see that we, even those who get vaccinated and then still get infection, uh, they are you know, less likely to have really bad outcomes. So it's still somewhat helpful. And so I still want people to get it. Mm-hmm. But I think it also talks about, you know, 
right now in a great year with a good match, we're still looking at 60 to 70 percent. And we compare it to things like measles vaccine, which, you know, 99 percent effective. Maybe we need more emphasis on developing a new vaccine. Well, usually you hear about it's the, you know, children or elderly that really get hit hard by the flu. But this year it was middle-aged adults. So you described those over age 50 as middle-aged, and <laughs> that's an entire another topic. I'll let you guys discuss that on your own. Um, but it is people at the extremes of age, even this year, when we're looking at influenza deaths. Um, it is still people who at the extremes of age uh, and those who have underlying medical problems who are most likely to have actual death as a consequence of influenza. L- let me ask my other question a different way without any commentary. Why isn't there a vaccine for the common cold? Ah, well, uh, there's a lot of different common colds. This is where you were absolutely right with your previous comment, uh, and that there's a lot of different viruses, and to be t- at this point tough to cover them, although I suspect we might be able to uh, create a vaccine that would cover a, a lot of the strains that are avail- uh, out there. But then it comes to, well, how do you, how do you put the, forth the uh, money to create a vaccine that uh, where even if people get the infection, they really don't die? Right. So what are you trying to prevent? And is there is that research money and sort of the money from a pharmaceutical company better spent elsewhere? And so, yeah, these are some of the sort of uh, barriers. You mentioned, you know, wouldn't it be great if someday you could get a flu vaccine every 10 years that would have 90 some percent effect? Is that really a direction that research is heading? Oh, yeah. Uh, Again, using our older technologies, what we currently have. You're really targeting uh, very specific proteins on the outside of the influenza, hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. We hear about H1N1, that's the H and that's the N. Uh, but every different strain really has different H's and different N's, and so that's why we have to keep reformulating it. But there's a few different areas within influenza that our body, our antibodies are able to see uh, that is really well conserved. Um, and so, like the matrix proteins and things, sort of things like that, which uh, you know, may be outside of the realm of our discussion, but there are things that are very well conserved, and trying to target those for our new vaccines, and you know, maybe we can have sort of broader protection, and then uh, working on new ways to sort of make that long-lasting and effective. All right, are you working on next year's vaccine, and hope it'll be better? Um, so it's it's going to depend on uh, what what the strain is that's going to be circulating. Uh, the influenza H1N1, which is an influenza A, tends to be less severe and tend to have better uh, vaccine efficacy against those than, uh, for example, this year it was an H3N2, which tends to have, if you will, worse infections and uh, worse vaccine effectiveness. Uh, but overall, again, I do want to encourage people to get their vaccine, you know, 60 to 70% effective in most years is, is actually better. It's still than a pretty safe bet. It's still better. <laughs> and even those who get the vaccine and get infected are, are likely to have better outcomes than if they didn't get the vaccine. But it does stress well, we do need to put some more research and more funding into getting better influenza vaccines. Well, I, you know, I, I did have the vaccine. I guess I did have a better outcome. I'm alive. I lived through it. And that, that <laughs> I guess that's something. Oh, but all you were you coughing. Expect. When you came back to work, I wanted to just send you back home again. It was so hard. Well, I, I know. And, and I'm not sure exactly when you should come back to work. But my neighbor, who is an intern, has said you can go. Oh, okay. And my well, wife said him. you better go. <laughs> 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 all right, Dr. Pratish Tosh, infectious disease disease specialist and an expert on the flu. Sorry we didn't do better this year, but next year hopefully we will. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. And that's our program for this week.
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.